questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. During the Crusades, chivalric knightly orders such as the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitaller brought along monastic mediciners to treat the sick and wounded. These mediciners not only employed the leading cures of medieval Europe, but also learned new methods from the local folk healers and Arabic healing traditions they encountered on their journeys. Presenting a traditional cure-all or leech book of the Crusader physicians, our guest shares a comprehensive encyclopedia of the ailments the Crusaders would have encountered and the remedies their mediciners would have employed. He details recipes for many cures and a range of magical medical applications, such as charms, spells, enchantments, and amulets, used to address the new illnesses of strange and foreign lands. He includes a detailed and comprehensive herbal, listing all the plants and materials needed to make and administer the remedies of the cure-all. He also details his travels in the steps of the Crusader physicians throughout Poland, the Czech Republic, Malta, Morocco, and the island of Rhodes, where he met with healers still following this healing path who share their practices with him. He reveals how the healers of the Crusades helped elevate Western medical knowledge through the integration of wisdom for the Middle Eastern counterparts. He shows how their legacy continues through the many effective remedies and healing modalities still in use today. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and more. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, Rebounders, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. John G. Hughes is part of a lineage of Druids that has been practicing for five generations in a remote area of Wales. He teaches the tradition in Ireland and gives workshops and seminars throughout Europe. He is the director of the Irish Center of Druidic Practices and the author of a Druid Handbook to the Spiritual Power of Plants and the Druidic Art of Divination. His latest book is titled The Healing Practices of the Knights Templar and the Hospitaller, which will be the focus of tonight's interview. And directly from Killarney, County Kerry, Ireland, I'd like to welcome John G. Used. Hello, John, and welcome to Veritas. Hello, Mel, and thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a bit of a difficult process to get here with our connectivity in rural Ireland, but thank you for your perseverance and for your team's dedication. Absolutely, and we are in the same destination today. That's what matters. You've been traveling a lot, and I'm glad to have you back home safely. We're, you were just on a plane a few minutes ago, so we really appreciate it. Uh, well, John, it's great to connect with you. I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book and look forward to sharing your wisdom with our audience. But what was your motivation in writing the healing practices of the Knights Templar and Hospitaller? I'm certain it must have taken a considerable amount of time and research. 
Well, Mel, it was a, a follow on, following on from my previous books, which mostly concern sort of herbal law and folk healing. Um, I've also had a lifelong interest in alchemy and metaphysics, uh, and particularly the confluence of magic and botanical healing, where the two come together, that, that very delicate borderline. Uh, and of course, the height of the alchemy trend was during the medieval period, which also is defined by the Crusades. So my main motivation really was to explore the way Western and Eastern healing traditions merged to form a new paradigm. That was really the basis for the healing traditions that we have today. So when the Knights Templar are mentioned in any topic, it brings all sorts of controversy. And for those who don't know, who were the Knights Templar and when and how did they come to be? Well, the Knights Templar were established in Jerusalem. They were a group of noblemen uh, who were in their own rights knights before they left Europe. Um, they were brought together in Europe. There's an awful lot of controversy about why they were formed and how they were formed. But we know it was in Jerusalem and their activities revolved around uh, the Temple Mount, uh, Solomon's Temple. And it was around about 1119 after the First Crusades. Uh, the real reason or the stated reason by the Pope for their establishment was to protect the travelers to the Holy Lands, the pilgrims, and, of course, the other Crusader knights. By that time, at the end of the First Crusades, uh, the, the Latin Crusaders had captured Jerusalem and it was under control of the, the first king of Jerusalem, uh, who, of course, was a, a Latin from a Latin source. Um, it, at the time, the, the, uh, the, the knights undertook all sorts of strange activities. And, of course, it's those activities and the Holy Grail, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that have really kept them prominent in history right up until the present day. Now, you said something interesting that caught my attention all of a sudden. You said the king of Jerusalem was of Atlantean source. Can you explain? Was of Latin source. Oh, I'm so sorry. All of a sudden... All of a sudden, I thought of Atlantis in my mind, and I'm thinking, that must be new to me, but that's okay. No, that, that would be a bit of a revelation, wouldn't <laughs> it? But uh, no, <laughs> I only mention the Latin source because he was uh, endorsed by the Pope at the time, and hopefully as we go on and, and delve a little deeper into this, you'll see that there was great problems between the popes and the rulers of Europe uh, at the time, a lot of conflict. So he was very much on the side of the uh, of the papal reign at the time. Correct me if I'm wrong, John, but the order was created to protect Europeans traveling to the Holy Land, among other duties. What did they learn from the Byzantium and the Arab people that made them acquire so much healing wisdom? Well, the Crusaders took with them a collection of medicinals along with a lot of other people, and they came into contact with the the 
Eastern uh, cultures, but they already had a well-established and sophisticated healing background. Uh, but they came up against a whole new plethora of ailments that they hadn't um, encountered before. I mean, if, if you imagine most of these healers would have been from a monastic background, they would have come from a rural uh, base, they would never have encountered even simple things like seasickness, which they encountered on the journey across the Mediterranean. Uh, so in response, they required a, a whole new collection of cures um, from the indigenous healers and, of course, a new uh, a palette of resources and techniques that the Eastern healers were well used to using at the time. But then they found themselves ill-equipped for the ailments of the Muslims, and they are Muslim Arabs and the Moors. What happened? Well, we're talking about a period, the early Middle Ages or the early medieval period, if you'd like to call it that, uh, that's become known as the Dark Ages in Europe, uh, typically regarded as running from the 6th century to the 10th century. Now, this coincided with the what's known as the Islamic Golden Age, a period of economic, cultural, scientific flourishing in Islamic history. Uh, and that tradition lasted generally from the 8th century to the 14th century. So they, they, they overlapped, and it was a time when the ancient Greco-Roman texts, the Aristotelian texts and such like, uh, were taken from the Western classical world to the Arab world, where they were translated and rewritten. And during the period of the Crusades, the Arab texts were again translated into Latin and copied in the monastic scriptoriums of Europe. Uh, I should say not always that accurately. Uh, the Western scribes had never heard of many of the strange commodities they were writing about, so they unashamedly substituted the odd and strange materials for more familiar botanicals and material medical that, that they would have known. So we frequently find misspellings, inaccurate translations, random substitutions, and pretty imaginative, imaginative additions to the text. Um, then these texts were expanded upon by the experience of the Crusader Medicinas and eventually reached the growing centers of learning in the new Europe of the Renaissance, uh, where, where they merged with the medical learning of the newly established medical schools in places like Palermo and elsewhere in Europe. So it, it, it was the beginning of a new age in medicine, one that we've all benefited benefited from since. So if, the, if this was during the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, during the yeah. collapse of the Roman M, the Holy Empire, then yep. they abandoned all attempts at learning, intellectual progress, and any form of cohesive political development. If that's the case, or was the case, then how was information being disseminated? Well, if we take the British Isles, for example, as a very similar process unfolded across much of Western Europe, uh, the, the, the Roman Occupation in Britain lasted from AD around AD 40 to AD 400, so approximately 350 years. Now, the, the, the Romans arrived in Great Britain as pagans, like the Britons, uh, but they'd converted to Christianity during their, their stay in Britain and the rest of Europe. Um, 
they left and the local tribal chieftains hired Saxons and Anglo mercenaries from Northern Europe to fight on their behalf. Uh, and quite quickly, these Anglo-Saxons took over much of uh, Britain for themselves uh, and gained huge tracts of land in the process. So uh, the period that began with universal strife in the UK and into tribal fighting, um, but then the dispute settled and there was a period of relative calm. Now, Christianity took a firm hold, held in the arrival of the Dark Angels, uh, the Dark Ages, as you mentioned in Britain, uh, where only the Christian clergy were allowed any form of learning. And they took a controlling role in every level of the community, uh, from large conurbations to the smallest villages. And the folk healing actually became illegal, as were most other forms of healing and medicine in general, on the basis of the Christian creed that only God could cure through prayer and devotion, and that all other forms of healing or reparation were the work of the devil. So that meant that all forms of learning, particularly medical advancement, were put in put on hold, and in fact they became officially defined as heresy during that period. Um, so it it wasn't the greatest of environments for the dissemination of new learning, but you know it man it managed it all the same. Um, it, it, it's it's difficult to really define how it came about, but we owe a great deal to the monastic communities and, as I mentioned earlier, their scriptoriums for recording a lot of the medicine. Why don't you set the stage about this particular time in history? A lot of this so-called new medicine was considered, quote-unquote, inappropriate and irrelevant. Take us back in time to put things in context. Well, again, as I'd mentioned, it was a time when all forms of healing other than prayer and devotion to God was considered as heretical. Um, so the old folk cures, which were maintained by, I mean, we've got to say witches and sorcerers and the druids of the time in Great Britain, um, were suppressed. But it couldn't be done effectively, and I guess it was empirical proof when people prayed, people still died, uh, but often when they were given the old four cures, they, they recovered. Uh, so a strange time uh, when medicine was on that cusp between magic and botanical healing, um, very few uh, uh, remedies were given or prescribed without a corresponding spell or curse, depending on, on who it was. Uh, so there was as much emphasis on the spiritual element of healing as there was on the, the actual physical botanicals and the, the potions and medicines of the time. John, your writing style is so descriptive that I used to close my eyes every few paragraphs and, and really immerse myself into that era. But I want to paint a picture for the listeners. When we think of the Roman Empire, most people think of conquest, but they don't think of all the innovations brought by the Roman central government, social and cultural innovations that aided daily life, political debate and representation, roads. All that got lost and replaced with warmongering and bitter feuding. 
paint a picture of how everything declined at the time. Well, as I mentioned, when the Romans left, yeah, we did benefit throughout Europe from um, the Roman invasion and occupation. Uh, but when they left, uh, there was great upheaval. Many of the local societies were run by tribal chieftains still, and there was a, a lot of infighting and a great effort to get rid of the last few Romans as they left. You can imagine, uh, having been in Great Britain and Europe for 400 years, they weren't that keen to just drop everything and leave. They built monumental buildings and, and sites, and um, which are still there today to be seen. So to get rid of the Romans, the uh, the tribal chiefs hired uh, mercenaries, if you like, from northern Europe, from northern France and, and Bohemia, uh, to fight on their behalf. But when the Romans left, we discovered that they discovered that uh, they were powerful enough to actually take over from the tribal leaders themselves. And it continued that way with lots of infighting and uh, a strange sort of Celtic Christianity, which was a mixture of paganism and Roman Catholicism. Uh, and it continued that way until 1066, when um, the last Norman conquest of, of Britain and William the Conqueror, I'm sure everyone's heard that story many times, um, which was the last foreign conquest of, of Great Britain. Now, when, when the Normans arrived uh, as, as a reward for their, uh, the, the various uh, aristocrats' efforts during the wars, uh, they were given great tracts of lands and castles throughout uh, Great Britain, uh, and, and they became the rulers of their areas, in some cases setting up their own laws and, and building their own towns, uh, certainly employing many of the, the indigenous folk on their farms and, and building new castles and fortifications. So it was a relatively peaceful time that followed this great upheaval uh, after the Romans left. And uh, you know, there was probably amongst these noblemen from Europe a, a feeling of discontent. They weren't natural farmers. They, they were the princes and and uh, sons of the, the French aristocracy and were used to a pretty active and exciting lifetime. So when the call to arms came at the Crusades, they were more than willing to uh, set off on new adventures and leave what I'm sure they must have thought of very boring farming and the administrations of small villages uh, to their sheriffs and uh, and lords that they left behind them. Well, they went off on this great adventure, the Crusades. But it was... Uh almost the glue that kept everything together. The, you know, since the greatest stabilizing influence on the population was disappearing, meaning the Roman Catholic Church gave rise to Christendom, which was controlled by two groups. Which were these two groups, and did they really help the population? Well, it's difficult to say that, or to suggest that Britain was controlled by any particular group, if we are to, to, to history, um, because there was no central organization. I mean, even when the Romans were, were occupying Britain, they did it in specific areas and specific generals and, and 
people were given control of different areas. So there was still a large number of what you could only call diverse, sort of unattached societies. Uh, and although there was a theoretical central authority of the crown and the church, most communities still existed as autonomous societies with their own laws and feudal government structures. So while some regions became subject to the Norman kings, some still opposed them, and many rural regions continued much as they had before the Norman conquest. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of the area between Wales, which was my original homeland, and England, where where the, the Normans uh, first occupied. They developed an area called the Welsh Marshes or the Welsh Borderlands, uh, where there was continuous warfare between the princes of Wales and the the Norman uh, noblemen, uh, and and you know uh, the one of the books I've written since this book focuses on that, and it's amazing how much of that resentment still exists, like a thousand years later between the British, the Welsh, and the people of the Welsh marshes. So it's difficult to say that there was one overall governing structure, although people do like to think that, I suppose, particularly the English Norman heritage people. From the outside, I always have that perception. I mean, we think of the United Kingdom as one united country, right? But when you go in yeah. and you look at the English and you and the Scots and the Welsh and the Irish – they seem to be their own thing, almost as if they just want to keep being separate countries. Am I right? You're, you're 100% right. I mean, we're seeing that in politics today now with with this confusion we have over Northern Ireland and the, the extraction of Great Britain from Europe, you know, the, the European uh, community. Uh, it, it still exists. I mean, I'm from um, a small mining town in the Welsh Valleys. And um, I, I, strangely enough, I was only having a conversation today with a lady who is born Irish, uh, talking about the resentment of the Irish towards the British and the you know, the famine, the days of the famine, etc. And she was telling me the tale of when Ireland achieved its independence. They returned a large statue of Queen Victoria, which stood outside the Doyle. Uh, during the whole time that Britain controlled the whole of Ireland. Uh, and when they returned it, they taped uh, a pound note into her hand because that was the personal donation that she made for the people suffering during the famine. Um, so, you know, that that's the sort of resentment that still underscores Irish-English relationships. It, it's a lot calmer now than it used to be, and it's a very theoretical difference, thankfully, now. You know, now that the the Armalites have been put away and there seems to be a much more sensible uh, um, politics going on at the moment. But, you know, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, I mean, it's highly likely that Scotland is going to have an independence referendum in the next two or three years. Uh, Wales, of course, has its own government um, and but still holds a lot of resentment against the British for their exploitation. I mean, Ireland had the uh, the famine. Wales had the the coal uh, barons who came and exploited the local people. 
uh, for the extraction of coal. I'm sure everyone's heard of the coal faces of, of Wales and the Rhondda Valley and such like. You know, it's a matter of occupation and exploitation and then times change and um, things seem to level themselves out. And once you're on a level foot in, these resentments seem to just bubble to the surface again. And I think this is why the... Go ahead. Painting a picture of rebellion here. This is very much a philosophical argument, if you know what I mean. It's not, well, of course. It's not what people are talking about in the bars in Killarney all day. Um, but if it does ever raise its head, if anybody ever mentions the famine, the whole thing pours out, you know. <laughs> of course, of course. And this is why even though the UK is no longer part of the European Union, the European Union doesn't want the independence of 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 the regions, for example, in Spain, you have Catalonia. They've been wanting yeah. to be independent for a very long time. Uh, once one of those happens, and there's a referendum, there, there's going to be war because they're not going to allow that domino to fall to other countries too. Well, you know, it's never an easy solution, is there? There's right. never an easy political solution. But uh, let's hope that we can avoid any sort of conflict like that, and it turns out to be a political, philosophical agreement rather than uh, outright war. We've had enough of those, you know. <laughs> uh, we've had a recent time here of, of sort of civil unrest. That's a very powerful word, expression to use to an American after your history of the last few years, I know. But uh, we've had this sort of rebellion against um, old-fashioned figureheads being portrayed as statues in time, the old slave traders and things, you know, the statues standing in squares and things like that have occasionally been pulled down. Uh, and recently there was a, an argument about the statue of Winston Churchill in uh, Parliament Square in London that a lot of people now don't feel that he was such a hero, uh, but he was a sort of child of the times uh, during the Second World War. Uh, and the Welsh people have a huge resentment against Churchill because of his treatment of these the striking coal miners in a town called Merthyr Tydfil, uh, what's known as the Merthyr Riots, where the uh, the local coal miners actually wanted to be paid with money instead of tokens from which they could only spend in the, the coal baron's shops in the town. They wanted real money. Uh, so they went on strike and uh, Winston Churchill sent in the troops and made a point of having his photo taken, stood on the the railway station, handing out bullets to the troops. And during the same day, they shot 27 coal miners for rebellion. So, um, you know, there, there's there's strange history. It's very complicated and it, it's it's deep in the psyche. But thankfully, at the moment, it, it's, it's buried very deeply. And uh, we are not seeing any real manifestation of it on the ground. Well, you would think that we would learn from all the wars and all the death that we've experienced in the last century, but we keep repeating some of those mistakes again. And the same thing happens with questioning the science. You can't question medicine these days. It becomes heresy to even question. It's almost as if we're repeating some of the Dark Age moments in history. But before the Renaissance took hold, there was an age of early enlightenment during the 11th century, again, the Crusades. But wasn't the Crusades a time of war? How was it enlightenment with war? Isn't that an oxymoron? Well, yes, you're right. Um, you can see there's an example here that we can look at in the sort of microcosm of healing with the example of the monastic healers. 
the very people who were to become the crusader medicinals, the, the healing monks that they took with them on the crusades. Many of the monks were converts to Christianity during the period that we spoke about earlier, during the, uh, the Roman occupation. Uh, and they converted as it spread across the islands. But previously, many of them were already folk healers or druids or conjurers, as we used to call the male witches uh, in, in Britain. Um, but they took with them the healing traditions of the old pagan world and the knowledge of the local botanicals and how to craft remedies and yet spells, curses, and the use of amulets, they took from their pagan past. But over time, inevitably, they employed those techniques within their new communities because they'd been proven to work, many of them. This is why we still see a presence of things like beekeeping, brewing, and herbal cures in monastic communities right up to the present day. And Every monastery still has its physics garden with separate sections for culinary herbs, medicinal herbs, poisonous herbs. Um, and in Devon, for example, where I've just come from, there's a, a famous medieval abbey called Buckfast Abbey, which still produces a product called Buckfast Wine, which is a wine infused with herbs from their own physics garden. And, you know, that's still available in most supermarkets and health stores throughout the UK. So... It's possible to say then that the burgeoning period of, of the Renaissance was more a return to a time before the domination of the Christian church, a, a slackening of those extreme Christian doctrines that, that, that made medicine a heresy, and emerging of the new and the old into a new enlightenment, if you like. It's also important to discuss what happened in November 1095, which gave rise to the Holy Crusade, which began in April 1096, which were actually at least nine individual crusades. A lot of people don't know that. And they lasted about yeah. 208 years. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, well, this is one of the biggest misunderstandings I came across when I was doing my research. And most people think of the Crusades as... King John and, and you know, th these guys on white steeds uh, going off for a, a war and winning back uh, Jerusalem and the Holy Land, so the Holy Catholic Church. Uh, but it was a long way from that. And apart from the, the First Crusade, which was a victory by default, really, um, most of the other crusades were abject failures. Um, and certainly we we shouldn't be looking on the the cohort of crusaders as being um the these knights in long white robes with the red cross on the front with, with their shining swords and their immaculate white steeds <clears throat> um, very few of them actually were knights when uh, the call to arms came to europe It was broadly preached uh, to all people, to common people in practically every church and on every crossroads throughout the UK and Western Europe. And all sorts of people went on crusades from uh, the, the local farmers to 
the local sort of traders and and their all their employees um and of course every one of these noblemen i mentioned earlier who had uh, pledged their fealty to the norman kings was obliged by their gift of lands to provide men at arms whenever the king asked for them and of course the the king responded to Pope Urban's call and um, he recruited these various noblemen to go on crusade, really, whether they wanted to or not. Now, with them, they took all of their people from their estates, the farmers and hunters and the the landkeepers, along with their wives, children, uh, pets, uh, and, and everything basically they could carry. And not all of them went uh, in order to save their soul, because, of course, by going on crusade, uh, you were given a a papal dispensation and forgiveness of all of your sins and a guaranteed place in heaven during your afterlife. Uh, But there was also a a great number that went with the aim of improving their health and uh, their wealth, rather, and their general uh, sort of status, because being a crusader, had with it uh, or took with it, uh, it attracted a degree of envy from the people who couldn't go. Uh, and of course, it gave them a status when they returned with uh, all of the wealth that they'd plundered. But I mean, what we had was a little bit of a ragamuffin band of people that trekked across Europe and then climbed into boats, sailed across the Mediterranean and, and marched through uh, the Holy Lands. Um, women, children who were all expected to take up arms or would do whatever they were asked to do during the crusade. Obviously, we haven't discussed the medicine and the curative practices yet, which, by the way, I found fascinating, John, but we will. I wanted to set the stage. <clears throat> Pardon me. We wanted. I wanted to set the stage first. Can you address two of the most widely misunderstood assumptions about the crusades? Well, If I understand your question correctly, I I think you're referring to the idea, A, that the Crusades has been a single campaign, which, of course, it wasn't. Uh, It was a long series of more than nine successive Crusades, as you mentioned, over a period of 200 years. Each of these Crusades was given a a sort of an apophrical name. Uh, There was even a children's crusade, which was made up of the the orphan children and and the the, the unwanted children um, from Europe. Um, But the other misconception, as I mentioned, was the idea that a force of crusaders was made up from these these knights in white tunics. Um, But there was a a huge mixture, and, and of course they had to take along with them uh, all their support people, like the ostlers, the tent of the horses, the cooks, the servants, they took clergy with them, and most importantly for the subject matter of this book, they took mediciners. That's what I was referring to, John, the, the fighting men and their accompanying mediciners, right? Yeah, yeah. No, they they were often uh, their own men, you know, men that were subject to them. Um, but many of the men, whether they were knights or parents, uh, peasants would have taken their entire family because, of course, at the time, monks and the Roman Catholic priests could marry. Uh, so they would have take, taken their wives, children, their parents, their pets, the farm animals. Um, on, on average, a, a crusader 
would have been away from home for around two years. So they took with them all the necessities and comforts they could carry in carts, handcarts, on pack animals. Um, and as I said, a fair percentage joined the Crusades in order to find their fortune uh, in the hope of plundering what wealth they could as they uh, as they traveled through the, the Holy Land or well, and Europe before they got there even. So you can see that the, the cohorts of the Mounted Crusader Knights were vastly outnumbered by a sort of ramshackle army of men, women, and children, uh, and, of course, the uh, medicinas who took with them all the things that they were familiar with from their home country and all the cures and remedies, their raw materials uh, in what they called a medicinous chest or medicinous casket, uh, which they put on the back of, of their carts before they left. Now that we have the, yeah, the, the the stage, I'm sorry, you were finishing your statement. Sorry, I was going. I was just going to add something that may be overlooked by by a lot of people when they think about this, as well as all of these practical physical things. They took with them a code of practice which had evolved um, during the, the the dark ages, particularly, uh, which most medicinals would have adhered to. Uh, and uh, the one I quote in the book, because there were a number, is taken from the Red Book of Hurtgeist, which is an ancient Welsh text, uh, which laid out both the sort of ethical standards and the practical standards that the medicinals were expected to maintain. So as well as the practical things like today's doctors and, and, and people, um, army doctors, if you like, who go off to war, uh, they took with them all of their supplies, their instruments, which were predominantly uh, taken from the craftspeople of the time, the chisels, the saws, the knives, etc., were all adaptations of the people used by the tradespeople that they came in contact with. But in addition to that, they did take a sort of ethical standards with them as well, which wasn't based on Christian morals, but very practical uh, sort of community morals, if you like. Now that we have the stage set, we're going to move into the medicine aspect. What was the impact of the Crusades on advancing medical practices? Well, the, the we could really sort of sum that up in um, a, a more or less a single sentence, um, which was they needed to acquire new skills and use new medical materials in order to cope with all the ailments uh, of their army campaigning in a foreign land, a foreign land that was hot, humid, had in indigenous diseases that they'd never encountered before. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, uh, even seasickness would have been a strange disease, not to mention the sort of dysentery that, that inevitably came from the seasickness in a small medieval vessel traveling across the, the Mediterranean. And the ports that they departed from um, were a hotbed of, well, you can imagine so many men uh, gathered together with their blood risen. Uh, it was a hotbed of uh, sex workers and there were huge outbreaks recorded of gonorrhea and syphilis, which to your rural doctor was relatively unknown ailment. So that they had to come up with all of these new cures, 
Now, the saving grace was that they came in contact during their crusade, during their time in the Holy Land, with people and with materials that addressed these types of illnesses. I mean, if you can imagine someone from rural England um, serving a patient who'd been bitten by a scorpion, I mean, they wouldn't even have known what a scorpion was, let alone how to address the bite or what to expect in the coming hours or days. So, you know, it, we can only wonder at the uh, ability to absorb all of these new illnesses and the, the new cures that they came into contact with. Many were written down, many were just maintained as an oral tradition, and we still see that right up until the present day, that some of this ancient healing has been recorded, as I mentioned, in the scriptoriums of the medieval abbeys and monasteries, and some has just been maintained, handed on from generation to generation as an oral tradition. So the crusader, if you define the term, is a person who participated in any of the military expeditions. But reading your book, this is new to me, the mediciners, how did they, who were they, how did they obtain the knowledge to heal? Well, the mediciners were drawn mainly from the monasteries. And as I mentioned, many of the, most monasteries would have had a herbarium where the the healer monk would have been based, and they would have drawn their knowledge from the indigenous knowledge of the folk around the local area. I mean, in those days, people didn't travel very far. So people living in, so we say, Shrewsbury, in the monastery in Shrewsbury, in the middle of England, would have been adept at cures and illnesses, uh, illnesses that occurred locally, and cures created from uh, plants and and other medical materials they could have gathered and and foraged locally. So the mediciners had this sophisticated background of uh, of healing, using local commodities and addressing local ailments uh, before they'd set out. So we weren't talking about, you know, ignorant peasant folk, instantly becoming doctors, they would have been experienced, trained uh, herbalists, and uh, I hesitate to use the word doctors because that would give them maybe more of a modern interpretation than they were. They, they were based mainly in two categories, and that was the physicians and the surgeons. The physicians were the people who would have been administrative cures, putting on bandages, except with the surgeons, pretty self-explanatory, would have been the people that um, were amputating people's arms and feet and legs and such like, which up until that time would have been done by the local barber or the local surgeon barber. Um, You know, there's an apocryphal story about the barber's sign, you know, the red and white pole. It was originally during medieval times where when it was first established, meant to represent a bleeding limb with a bandage wrapped around it um, because these surgeon uh, medicinals, um, surgeon barbers um, would have been found in every major conurbation. But they were used to dealing with sort of farm things, you know, people who'd caught their hands in plows and 
cut their hands with axes in the forest and this sort of thing. So they would have been familiar with amputation and such like, but it was then the physician who would have put on, they would have cauterized the wound with fire generally or tar, um, but it would have been the physician then who would have come along and given the herbal remedies and the painkillers and the, the other sort of local herbal cures. Um, interestingly, I don't. I hope you haven't had much involvement with hospitals and surgeons in the modern day, uh, but you might have noticed that uh, the surgeons still maintain, as a matter of privilege, the title of Mister as opposed to Doctor. Whereas if you visit a doctor, you'd call them Doctor, whatever their name is. Surgeons, by tradition, are always addressed by the Mister title, so they'd be Mister whoever as a surgeon rather than Doctor, and that comes directly from the fact that they were the surgeons and not the physicians. Interesting. I did not know that, but I'm, um, while you were talking, I'm, I'm thinking of nurses. I know nurses who have been, you know, who've been nurses for 20 or 30 years. And yep. some of the knowledge they've acquired in their tenure in hospitals overshadows some of the doctors that come on in. It's like these mediciners. I'm sure the amount of patients the carnage, yep. the plagues, the epidemics they encountered for over, what, 200 years resulted in a, a vast catalog or, or a journal, a diary. Yep. Can you discuss the range of ailments, some unfamiliar diseases, too, which they had never encountered? Well, the, yes. Uh, many of the battlefield, of course, had battlefield hospitals that they set up as soon as they arrived in the Holy Lands. Um, and I, I would say, like present medicinals in armies, they treated the enemy with as much commitment as they did their own soldiers, and they were famous for it. Uh, in fact, one of the things that the um, the Arabs said about the Christians, one of their trait, one of their great traits, was their kindness to their enemy. They they were identified and singled out as being very kind to their enemies because of this. Um, so they encountered all of these strange uh, battlefield injuries, which, as I said, could they could have drawn some experience from the, the farming injuries, I'm sure. Um, but one of the great things about Eastern, uh, the differences between Eastern and Western warfare at the time was that Western warfare had uh, a tradition of horseback, mounted knights, so there was a lot of horseback confrontations, whereas the Arab world thought there was on foot generally. So one of the big advantages that the Crusaders had during the First Crusade was the use of horses and their ability to charge through the ranks of the, the Arab foot soldiers. Um, but the Arabs soon learned that if they brought down the horse, that the knight on the horse's back became very vulnerable, like a turtle turned on their back. Their, their armor wasn't designed for quick movement and uh, ground warfare, if you like. It was more to do with swinging a huge sword from the back of a horse. So many of the injuries that they encountered of the Crusader army were to do with broken legs, crushed ribs, and um, ailments that arose from falling from your from your horse or being rolled over by your horse. Then, of course, once they were on the ground, they couldn't move, so they were very vulnerable to attack. 
uh, particularly stabbing wounds rather than chopping wounds, because the Arabs quickly learned that they could stab through uh, the armor with a sharp implement, but it was much more difficult to try and cut through the steel armor of the day. Um, so the and of course you can't forget that this was during a time of a burgeoning plague. Um, they'd never encountered things like malaria, which would have been rife in, in that area, still is rife in that area. So as well as all these physical ailments, there were all these diseases and sicknesses that had to be dealt with. And the main way they they dealt with these was with what they'd learned from the local mediciners in the small towns they traveled through on their travels, who were again, with Arab hospitality, only too happy to treat any of these diseases in the Crusader Nights. Um, and, of course, the mediciners watched what they did, took with them samples of the, the various potions, anointments, uh, and then learned how to make them themselves. So although they had uh, a great deal of new ailments, battle wounds and things to cope with, they've quite quickly gathered around them all of the medicinal materials they needed and absorbed the knowledge and the techniques of the local healers of the area. And obviously during the time we didn't have planes or cars or ways to transport people far distances. So people did not travel far that much as they were not exposed to a lot of the the disease or germs that were in foreign lands. So we come to an important stage now. Caring for the Christian pilgrims traveling to the Holy Land became an urgent priority as more pilgrims became sick and many were dying. Uh, again, the illnesses that were not present in their homelands. And this gave a grave rise to the Order of Knight of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, the Knight Hospitaller in short. This is new to me. Please define who they were. Okay, now un unlike the uh, the nice Templar, whose prime raison d'être was the defence of the the pilgrims and and their fellow knights, the knights hospitallers were in two distinct uh, groups. There was the military knights who fulfilled a similar role to the um, the nice Templar, but then there were the hospitaller knights who were dedicated to the care of the sick and ailing. Um, the nice hospitalers arose from what was a desperate need for pilgrims who were traveling to the Holy Lands to be protected from bandits and thieves as they made their journey on one side of the coin. That would have been the military cohorts. Um, and to be looked after for their medical needs and that became the hospitaller, the caring part of the order. Now, the, the order, again, like the, the Templars, was comprised of noblemen from most of the regions of um, Western Europe. Uh, they, like the Templars, took holy vows as warrior monks, and they took on a familiar garb you may well be aware of, which again was the long white tunic, but this time with a black eight-pointed star on the front, which many people will now identify as the, the Maltese cross, uh, which we see today in the Order of Malta and uh, St. John's Ambulance and things like that. They still maintain that, and they directly descended from the Knights Hospitalers. 
so they had both a military and a medicinal arm, um, and it grew even wider during their history. Uh, and they had a very long history, and you know they still exist today under different names, and they became known as different knights as they progressed through their history, as maybe we'll see as we as we talk more. Um, and, and so that they were really, in many ways, much more versatile and much more of a servant to the community, to the uh, to the knights themselves, and to the pilgrims than the Templars were. I mean, we'd have to say that the Templars, as well as being the protectors, were the bankers as well for the Crusaders, which is a whole other very, very important part of their existence. Let me add a quick parenthesis here. I don't mean to deviate, but I'm so curious to ask you this question. You might think it has nothing to do with, with our topic, but the largest okay. United States embassy in the Western Hemisphere in the, is located in San Salvador, El Salvador, on an avenue called the Knights of Malta Avenue. And I've received pictures right. of vehicles leaving diplomat with diplomatic the license plates, and they always have the Knights of Malta, the emblem, the the four, the eight uh, side star on the vehicles. Any, what's the connection between the Knights of Malta and all of this, and why so prevalent? Well, it's it's become. I'm hopefully we'll we'll discover it on the Knights uh, Hospitaller had their last uh, sort of residency on the island of Malta in the Mediterranean. Um, oh, okay. And that's where the, the the cross, for a time, first, I may be jumping your, the gun in your questions a little here, but uh, when uh, Acre fell, which was the last Christian-controlled city in the Holy Lands, when it fell, the knights left the Holy Land entirely. They went to Cyprus for maybe two years and then to Rhodes, where they flourished. Um, and then they moved on to Malta, which was their last home, uh, because they were thrown out of roads by um, Solomon the Magnificent, uh, who who laid them to siege, and, and, and they ended up surrendering the whole island. Uh, and they found a home under the uh, the king of of, um, of Italy at the time, uh, and they were given Malta for an annual rent of one falcon, hence the Maltese falcon, the same the famous film, and you know the rest of it. Uh, but the the Maltese falcon was the annual rent that the knights hospitallers paid to the king of Italy for their residence on the island. I love so, I love opening these doors that I have I didn't think of before. <laughs> Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, I would say that the connection in um, in uh, the sort of Spanish parts of, of uh, South America would be through the Spanish invasion and the Spanish conquest, uh, taking with them Knights Hospitallers. And I mean, there is evidence even of Knights Templars having visited uh, the north of uh, North America. Uh, but I mean, it it wouldn't be unreasonable to assume that the emblem would have been taken with healing people from Spain to the con the new the new world as we called it o over our side. Um, 
during the, the conquistadors, maybe. I'm not quite sure of the dates of all of that, but maybe if you were to look at it, you could find some correspondence there. Why were the hospitalers so important? And did they did the only function was it tending to the sick or were they known for other duties too? The, well, they provided protection and medical care for all the pilgrims, but not just those from their home states. Uh, they provided care for the local people as they were traveling through, uh, for all of the wives. I mean, they were the midwives, if you like. Um, and not forgetting that many of them, although they'd taken vows of chastity, many of them were married. Uh, there was a large cohort of sex workers taken with them as well. Um, so they offered a service to everybody, basically. And, I mean, if you can imagine these thousands of people traveling across a foreign land with their wives, their children, um, there would have been an awful lot of childbirth and, and illnesses and childhood illnesses and such like. So the hospitalers, the, the healing cohort of the hospitalers became probably the most advanced medical practitioners on the planet at the time and certainly the most experienced um, and you know they spent their lives serving the sick and the dying and even the military arm each of the nights if they were in their home base was required to spend part of their day tending to the sick in the hospitals they created. So it was a very caring organization for the time. You know, it was a very brutal time, uh, but they were sort of the caring people of, of that period and the very knowledgeable medicinals. I guess we spent our first hour setting the stage because it's so important. We have to just discuss who they are, but some of the medicinal practices they have, some of the healing, the herbs, the things they use, are so fascinating, and I want to get to the bottom of this when we come back in the second hour. But one question, and then I'll get your answer on the other side. Why is it, John, that most of these groups, the Knights Templars and, and the Hospitallers, have a long history of association? It almost gives a negative connotation. The secret esoteric groups, the Freemasons, the Rosicrucians, and even the Royal Antediluvian Order of Buffaloes and other organizations. But how can people buy the book, which I found fascinating, John? Fine, fine. Uh, if you're going to take a short break, I'll, I'll address that one when we come back, if that suits you. Sure, but just tell people, how can they buy, how can they buy the book right now? Oh, right, right. Well, um, it's, it was released in, the, in North America in, at the end of April. It's available worldwide now since the 5th of May. Um, any of the, hopefully, your local or city-based bookstores, certainly Amazon and all the major online retailers would have it. Uh, it's published by Inner Traditions Bear & Co. Um, so if, if there are any shopkeepers listening and they want to get stocks, uh, I would imagine that would be where they would go. And you won't believe some of the, the healing modalities and some of the things they did back then which you might have heard from your grandmother or your great-grandmother, but it's incredible. All of this when we come back with John G. Hughes. This is Mel Hoslerich, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, 
check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.